Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, does, in fact, deal with the brain, the, uh, the physical aspect of the mind, and uh, some rather radical things that uh, have and can be done to it. Like drilling a hole in it. Yes, or particularly drilling a hole in the skull to create a pathway to the brain. Yes, a kind of a cranial release point. Yeah, I mean, we are talking about trepanation, which is something that uh, has been performed since prehistoric times, and we'll get more into that. Mm-hmm. But um, it's pretty much mostly associated with witch doctors. But we're going to talk about it today in a medical sense, a historical sense, and what it may or may not have to do with Alzheimer's. Yes. Um, I do want to just go ahead and get this out of the way right now, and we'll probably uh, touch on this some more. But no matter what you hear in this episode, do not drill a hole in your skull or the skulls of anyone you know. Um, It's a bad idea. Best left to professionals, if that. You know, we we have cautioned you guys a lot before mm-hmm. we've talked about, like, if you get stung by a sh- uh, uh, jellyfish, do not pee on yourself or others, because mm-hmm. it's not going to work. It might actually make things worse. But we are super serious when we yeah. talk about trepanation. Um, and we're kind of laughing about it right now. But uh, as we will go into later, people have performed self-trepanations before, and we'll talk about the reasons for that. But again, this is something that is... Uh, it's just not something you should do. I mean, it's brain surgery. Right, exactly. And uh, in, in, a, in a sense, the, the oldest form of brain surgery. Now, when we're talking about, uh, about trepanation, essentially this is the surgical removal of bone segments, often circular, but sometimes it'll be a square. It, it varies, but, uh, but you see a lot of circles uh, from the skull in order to treat the symptoms of real or imagined brain maladies. Yep, it was practiced by the ancient Egyptians, Chinese, Indians, Romans, Greeks, and the early Mesoamerican civilizations. Uh, the earliest example that has been found of a skull with trepanation marks goes back to the beginning of the Neolithic period some 10,000 years ago. And the procedure is still performed today, um, both for medical and non-medical reasons. Yeah, the, today uh, doctors tend to call it uh, a uh, craniotomy instead of uh, trepanation. Just because trepanation is kind of a, well, and for many good reasons, kind of a stigmatized term because it does just bring to mind drilling a hole through the skull. And uh, as, as we'll discuss, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. A, a lot of that baggage it does not deserve, but some of it it does. Yeah, and when doctors do it today, it's because there's been some sort of head trauma mm-hmm. and uh, some sort of injury that now only a sort of trepanation would help to reduce swelling in the buildup of blood and other fluids, which can kill brain cells. Yeah, we're talking about uh, epidural or subdural hematomas here. Uh, and, and also... Uh, uh, portions of the skull will be reviewed, will be removed in, in order to access parts of the brain. And in those cases, uh, of course, if you're taking this brain flap off and you're uh, replacing it with a titanium plate, uh, screwing it on, uh, or using other, some other form to to fix it uh, back in position. Yeah, uh, and that, again, these are, are medical reasons for undergoing this procedure. Non-medical, there there are quite a few reasons, it turns out, uh, through history. And mm-hmm. one could be a kind of symbolic trepanning in which, you know, there's not a, there is a little bit of a hole made in the head, but it's more of a symbolic thing, a sort of third eye that mystics might say that, you know, would help to expand your consciousness. Um, 
I do know that archaeologist Bob Arnott says, and this is in a New Scientist article, The Skull Doctors, that some holes were made after death as part of a burial rite or to allow removal of the brain before mummification. And he says that in some societies, people actually wore bone amulets, little discs that were cut out from the skull of a leader or a great warrior. So... It's kind of like the the whole symbolic transaction that happens there. If you have a little bit of that warrior or leader, perhaps you possess some of their power. Yeah. And undoubtedly, trepidation was used to treat various headaches, epilepsy, mental disorders. There's even in the most basic forms of trepanation with like the, the least medical ideas, there's still this notion that there is an essential link between what's going on inside the skull and the human condition and your experience of reality and that you can somehow adjust this, tap into it, treat it mm-hmm. by breaking down the barrier between the world and the brain. Um, and in this, you do see some of these ideas that are in many cases misapplied, but undoubtedly there have been holes drilled in heads to release spirits, demons, etc. Yeah, the spirit and demons things is something that uh, that seems as though the Western world has applied to yeah. what they might have deemed as a primitive culture. Yeah, I think it's it's from what I've read, it's definitely overstated. But it's difficult for anyone to say no one ever drilled a hole in a head uh, to release a spirit or demon. But right. but it is it is over applied, and we'll get into the details on that. It kind of gets you know, trepanation gets into that weird territory that cannibalism gets into, mm-hmm. where there's so much myth, and it's freighted with with so much morality that is sometimes hard to suss out the truth from fiction over a historical amount of time. Yeah, because certainly, uh, especially if you're looking at, at you know Western European culture in the, 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 the over the last uh, few centuries. Really into the ideas of uh, of primitives, primitive peoples, or you know, peoples that were deemed as primitive, uh, eating each other and eating foreigners. Uh, certainly into the idea of of some sort of a primitive witch doctor, just uh, you know treating some sort of malady by saying, "Oh, must free uh, ghost from skull with hammer," you know, because it's just it's it's a demeaning idea. It's, mm-hmm. it, it 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 limits those individuals to the most uh, primitive modes of human behavior. It, yeah, but and we have seen this in, in uh, Westerners for a long time, mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, a Westerner must be much more sophisticated. So therefore, it must be that they felt as though they were possessed by a demon and yeah. they had to let it out. But according to Dr. John Verano, who um, looked at something like 10 years of uh, skulls, uh, that were in museums and private collections in the U.S. and Peru. And he came to the conclusion that there's plenty of evidence for advanced surgical skills among the prehistoric people of the Andes. So that's for one. Yes. Um, and if you start to look at this a little bit more, then you, you will stumble across someone called Ephraim George Squire, who back in 1863 already knew this. He already suspected this. Um, but he actually had a different hypothesis of why this was, and it didn't have anything to do with demons. Um, he was an American diplomat, and he was journeying across P- uh, Peru when he met Senora Zanito, who had in her possession a skull with a perfectly square uh, cut in it. And what he noticed is that it had healing scar marks, and it mm-hmm. had new bone growth, which would indicate that the person, whoever inhabited that skull before, survived the trepanation. Yeah, they were healing. They were going on with their lives. Uh, despite and maybe even because of this hole. 
That's right. This, if you want to look more into this, too, this specific example, it is from the Mental Floss article, Head Case. And uh, it goes into d- detailing trepanation in uh, various ways. And Squire, who is a rather interesting individual on his own. I mean, a self-taught archaeologist that was sent by Abraham Lincoln to South America to deal with the guano uh, the guano, the guano business, the guano problem, and then he ends up uh, immersed in this issue of uh, of, of these skulls and ancient uh, neurosurgery, and uh, and and at the time, you know, we were talking about Western ideals mm-hmm. about what uh, primitives, uh, primitive so-called primitive uh, societies did and do. Um, this was a time where certainly the West white Westerners were were like to view themselves as this superior species almost, mm-hmm. and certainly a superior race, and everybody uh, uh, else was just kind of uh, piddling about. So the idea that uh, ancient, ancient uh, Mesoamericans had advanced neurosurgery was kind of was a, r- a radical idea, and in, in, in some senses a dangerous idea uh, to those who wanted to hold on to these, uh, these notions of uh, Western superiority. That's right, because, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but, you know, 19th century, they, they were not having a lot of uh, success with the procedure itself, and it right. had been largely abandoned by this time. So to think that a civilization, um, you know, 5,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, could have carried this out successfully seemed to fly in the face of logic. And what Squire did is he presented um, this, this skull to Paul Broca, who is a French or was a French neurosurgeon and also the person for whom Broca's area in the brain is named for. And uh, he corroborated Squire's discovery and said, yes, this is intentional. This looks like neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but Broca thought it was uh, done for primitive reasons. Again, releasing the demons, the ghost of the mind. And Squire said, no, I don't think so. And he was... The first, I believe at that time, to come out and say, I think that it has more to do with perhaps combat. Yes. Um, I should also point out that uh, Broca also thought that it was done almost exclusively on children. Which oh, he, yeah, this is gruesome. Which he collaborated by saying, hey, look, I, I used a, a glass instrument to, uh, to, to gouge holes in the corpses of children and adult, uh, dead adults, and I found that it was far, it was a far faster procedure with the child. Mm-hmm. And therefore he concluded that it was used exclusively on children. Which was his experience with his instruments, right? right. So it's not a great way to sort of test out that yeah. hypothesis, but that's what he came to. Um, in the meantime, you have things like ink and pots mm-hmm. that are showing up depicting trepanation. Yeah. Further evidence that this was happening. Um, you have a survey of ancient Incan skulls showing that more males than females had trepanation holes, probably because most warriors were men. Yeah. And in addition, the majority of man-made holes in the skull uh, would occur on the left side of the skull. And the idea is that right-handed assailants, of which we know there are more of, um, those the blows of those assailants would land um, on the left side of the skull. We're talking about from a club, a sword, a slingshot. Um, so that's sort of more evidence that in this case, in the Incan's case, this kind of trepanation was more of an ER procedure, really. Right. You have individuals who sustain massive damage to the head. They've essentially sustained brain trauma. And so the uh, the surgical procedure of the day was to try to relieve that pressure. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's give it a look-see okay. and try to imagine what this might be. All right, um, you're an Incan warrior. Yeah, I've just stumbled in from the battlefield. I, I took a club blow to the head. 
I'm in pain. I'm bleeding. What can you do for me, Doc? Ah, well, I see that you might have some shards of your own skull in your brain. we got to pick those out. Um, let's clamp your head between my knees. Okay. Pour some coconut juice on your scalp. And okay. then we've got some uh, freshly cut leaves that we can just put on this wound to dull the pain. Oh, okay. Those would be cocoa leaves. Cocoa leaves, exactly. Yeah. And uh, maybe you want to even have a little bit of our homemade alcohol because okay, things good. are going to get I might need that. Crazy. Maybe some tobacco as well, even. Yes, some tobacco. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take the sharp object. It, it could be perhaps a, a tooth from an animal. Oh, good. Good. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. I'm going to cut into your skull, and I'm going to groove it around and around this fracture you have deeper into your skull. And, uh, yeah, have a little bit more of, of those cocoa okay. leaves, good. by the way. And then you're going to feel this kind of sucking feeling when this plug of bone comes off of your brain. So or rather it, your skull. Because it's kind of like my brain is sealed in a in a Tupperware, right? And you have just drilled through that Tupperware with your animal tooth. Yes, but mm-hmm. it's not over yet. Because oh, okay. I have this, these great forceps that I've fashioned out of bamboo. And now I'm just going to kind of pick around the wound, wash it out with a little bit more coconut milk, and take out any other sort of splinters. Because, you know, you don't want that. And I'm going to dress it with leaves. A plaster of pepper, lime, and beetle nut. Oh, excellent. Now, is there any way you could, you could sew things up there as well? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's We should really sew you up with some uh, bat bones and banana fibers. Oh, good, good. Before good. putting that dressing on. Ooh, Thanks for reminding right. me, because that could have been really bad. Yeah, I would have had to come back, and you know, then that's two visits, and uh, I don't know how my Incan insurance uh, covers those, uh, the, those post-op visits. Also, count yourself lucky, because if this were happening in the future, in like the 19th century, you might be toast, because, you know, that coconut juice... Super good for keeping bacteria out, and it turns out that that's a real killer. Yeah, this is uh, this touches on the really one of the really interesting parts about it, especially when you're looking at it from Squire's point of view in his time, because again, Western society had pretty much abandoned trepanation because, despite improving tools, you know, moving mm-hmm. from more primitive instruments to to uh, instruments of metal and devices and you know clamps and whatnot to to put on top of the head, like you see in the woodcuts. Um, Despite all of these advancements, there is still a pretty high mortality rate yeah. for individuals uh, sustaining any kind of neurosurgery on up into uh, the 1870s, uh, when a survey found that as many as 76% of neurosurgical patients died. Now, mostly from infection. Mostly from infection, because it's one thing to to dig around in there, but then everything has to heal, and and it's very susceptible to infection. Now, you compare this to New Guinean tribes. And uh, you see just 30% of those patients died. Wow. So obviously there's something here to keeping the wound infection free. And you think about this, too, even like with childbirth fatalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, once things were sterilized and a, a good practice was put into place, that really got people over the hump of, of the um, actual procedure itself and, you know, helped them to heal and and. Here's a great example of, wow, I um, survived this trepanation, but now I might pass away from an infected wound. Yeah. So it's kind of a champion of the little man, in a sense, because uh, Squire ended up, be- ended up being the, the victor in this, uh, in this argument. With, he was vindicated. Uh, yeah. The self-taught archaeologist won over the esteemed uh, uh, French uh, neurologist Broca. So, uh, so I kind of like that. And it's a champion for these uh, these so-called primitive societies mm-hmm. that were looked down on. Uh, suddenly, people had to realize, hey, the uh, the ancient Incans, they, they knew what they were doing. 
Indeed. And they were doing it in a way that was more successful than their more modern counterparts. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, so when we get back, we are going to talk about Amanda Fielding, who is best known for performing her own trepanation. All right, we're back. And you know, it's easy to think at this point in the podcast, well, all right, we've discussed some of the ideas about why people uh, would drill a hole in the head, uh, why trepanation was practiced, why why it is still practiced today. And you might think, well, case closed. We've sort of, we sort of figured it out. There are a few cases in which we need to apply this procedure in order to deal with uh, some sort of uh, injury to the, to the skull, some sort of brain trauma, or some sort of uh, neurosurgery that requires access to the brain. There couldn't be any wacky or pseudoscientific or controversial reason to drill a hole in your head. Hmm. Well, let me see. 1970, you decide to drill a hole in your head. Maybe you're trying to widen your consciousness. Yes. Is that the wacky reason? I think so, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, the idea of performing trepanation, uh, generally on yourself, because it's hard to find somebody to do it for you if your whole goal is to expand human consciousness. Uh, yeah, if it's not an emergency medical situation, most yeah. likely the person, the surgeon is not going to perform that. Right, that person agreeing to do it is probably not an actual doctor, and you're probably not in a hospital. Yeah, you should check references and look around. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we are talking about Amanda Fielding, who uh, documented her own trepanation, and this was a 1970 film called Heartbeat in the Brain, she is now 71 years old and is the director of the Beckley Foundation, a trust that for over a decade has been carrying out research into consciousness, including the use of LSD and other psychoactive substances. She also ran for British Parliament twice on the platform of trepanation. And there's these great posters uh, that she has that uh, shows her with a, a bird on her shoulder looking out in the distance. And then it says trepanation for the national health. You know, that's an interesting way to, to sell trepanation just with sort of an abstract bird. Like, yeah, cause I can easily imagine, and I, I'm not to poke fun at it or anything, but I, I can imagine her bringing up this, this is being, being her, her number one, uh, focus point for the campaign. And then her campaign people saying, well, we need to present that in a way that's a little, maybe a le- little less on the nose. Uh, may- maybe no images of anyone actually drilling into their head, per se, and more just a bird staring off into the distance. I feel like she took both tacks, though, because yeah. I think there's another one around in which um, it's the sort of iconic image from the documentary oh, in which yeah, her head is wrapped up. Yeah, and she's and like looking in the mirror. And... Yeah, she's looking in the mirror, and there's some blood going down her face. Um, so, yeah, maybe she was testing out, you know, A-B situations there. But she was advocating trepanation. She was saying, yeah. we would be better off if we, uh, if we all did this. Before we go into the whys of why she did it, let's talk about how she did it. Because again, okay. she's filming herself. She's in the mirror. Uh, she said in an interview with Vice Magazine, I was obviously very cautious and prepared myself very carefully. I used an electric drill with a flat bottom and a foot pedal and tested the drill head on the membranes of my hands to see if it would damage the skin. The whole thing was carefully prepared, but more than anything, I prepared myself psychologically. It's the last thing you want to do. After I'd performed the procedure, I wrapped up my head with a scarf, had a stake to replace iron from the lost blood, I think almost a pint, by the way, and, and went to a party. 
<laughs> it doesn't set you back at all. It doesn't incapac- incapacitate you. It is just a half-hour operation. But in no way am I advocating the idea of self-trepanation. It should always be carried out by members of the medical profession. So, and that's key here. Again, if anyone reads this and th- hears this and thinks, "Oh, I want to," that sounds interesting. I'd like to get, give that a go. The the world's foremost trepanation advocate says, "Do not do this at home." Not only that, she says that yes, she had a change in dream pattern. She says her dreams became less anxious. But she says, could all of that be described as a placebo? There is, of course, that possibility, and I am very conscious of that. Okay. So she acknowledges, yeah, I drilled a hole in my head. I felt better for it, but you know what? I'm aware of the placebo effect, and this could perhaps be just a psychological state for me. So let's talk about why she did this to herself. Well, for starters, she was the pupil of Bart Hugus, a uh, Dutchman who in 1965 carried out his own self-trepanation in order to expand his consciousness and uh, and was a huge advocate of it himself, mm-hmm. uh, claiming that it was a way to essentially be high all the time. Yeah, and side note, too, he named his daughter Marijuana. Oh. Mary, marijuana. Well, I read that that's, he was actually kicked out of medical school because he was a huge marijuana advocate. So. Yes. Yeah. So I just thought this is an interesting side note since we just did an episode on names yes. and how they have these sort of self-fulfilling prophecies sometimes. But anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, yeah, a very interesting character. He came up with a concept called brain blood volume. And this is this idea that trepanning allows the full heartbeat to express itself. And Fielding says... Hey, when a baby is born, the top of the skull is really soft and flexible, and you have the fontanelle closing, and then the skull bones close. And she says this inhibits the full pulsation of the heartbeat, so it's denied its full expression of the brain, so to speak. That loss of pulse pressure results in a change of ratio between the two fluids in the brain, blood and cerebral spinal fluid, which is important, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, she says it is blood that feeds the brain cells with what they need, such as glucose and oxygen. The cerebral spinal fluid removes some of the toxic molecules. So she's saying that trepanation essentially works by restoring the full pulse pressure of the heartbeat. And she has been doing some research lately about this as it relates to Alzheimer's. Um, but before we get into that, I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of give a call back to a past episode called The Night Janitor, in which we talked about the glymphatic system. Yeah, we're talking about the glymphatic system or the glymphatic clearance pathway. It's a functional waste clearance pathway in the uh, mammalian central nervous system. And uh, this uh, discovery really uh, lands at the feet of Danish biologist Macon Nedergaard, she was leading research into sleep function at the University of Rochester's Medical School, and uh, she didn't think everything was really stacking up and making sense. Uh, that figured that the, the brain is too busy to recycle all this energy. There's a, essentially a, a, a waste disposal problem with the human brain. Yeah, because she was looking at the lymphatic system, so mm-hmm. muscles um, create toxic byproducts, right? And those right. build up, and then they're ushered out by the lymphatic system. So she was thinking, I don't think this. Uh, the brain can't be doing that. The brain is so active during the day. Maybe we can look at this at night and see what's going on in terms of waste removal. Yeah, she suspected that the brain shared uh, a, a similar system that the muscles had and that the, and the lymphatic system offered, uh, but instead that it's uh, predicated on cerebrospinal fluid in what she called the glymphatic system, uh, with a, a nod to the brain's uh, glial cells, which maintain uh, homeostasis and protect neurons. So what did she do? Uh, she and her team injected 
anesthetized mice with fluorescent tracers into their cerebrospinal fluids. So this allowed them to track where the fluid was traveling in their bodies and in their brains. And during the mice's waking hours, that fluid barely made it into the brain. But once sleep was induced, the brain cells of the mice actually shrunk and that made way for a flood of the cerebrospinal fluid, essentially hosing down the brain of waste with the proteins and these uh, toxic byproducts and ushering them out. And here's the weird thing. Okay. Or not weird, but very, very interesting. In humans with dementia and Alzheimer's, there's an excess of the brain's toxic byproduct, beta amyloid. So that is giving researchers a really big reason to look into cerebrospinal fluid and see how it takes away these these byproducts. Because the idea is that if there is a buildup, mm-hmm. well, that can cause disease. Yeah, it's kind of like plaque. It's like brain plaque. So now you have Russian neurophysiologist Yuri Maslenikov, who believes that trepanation could act as a kind of release valve and allow better circulation of the cerebrospinal fluid. And he says that as we age, the proteins in the brain harden, preventing this system from working as it should. And as a result, the flow of both blood and cerebrospinal fluid is reduced and impairs the delivery of oxygen and nutrients, as well as the removal of waste. Now, if I'm understanding this right, Fielding is actually working with that Russian uh, researcher and has the same beliefs about this. And, you know, I almost didn't want to even point these two things together, um, the, mm-hmm. the night janitor that we discussed and the cerebrospinal fluid being attached to um, the buildup of proteins and disease. But it's so interesting that this trepanation aspect of it would come into play. Yeah, uh, we were talking about this earlier, you know, hesitant to draw any lines between um, such an extreme activity as mm-hmm. self-trepanation or even advocating self-trepanation and, uh, and, and actual grounded science. But the way I like to look at it is this is an extreme view. And uh, it's kind of like taking the train to the end of the line. Not everybody takes the train to the end of the line. The tracks may be, uh, may, may be uh, you know, completely ironed out with, with real science, but you can follow the tracks it's too far. You can go a little too far down the, the line. And even someone in an extreme position, that extreme position is going to be entangled with with some truths a lot of the time. And so who knows where this exactly pans out huh? in the uh, end. Yes. Well, of course, research is needed, right? right and then right. the problem is how do you get research funding for trepanation? And, um, you know, I, I know that they have looked at Alzheimer's patients before and, and people who have had head traumas and then had trepanation. And they have seen that uh, when they are trepanated, that the um, that, that blood flow increases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when they replace that bone fragment or they seal it up, that it reduces. So, yes, that's true. But there's not enough research here to say, ah, yes, this is the thing that will cure Alzheimer's or dementia. And, in fact, I think the real star of this story is cerebrospinal fluid. The fact that this is the stuff that hoses down the works in your brain and takes out the toxic byproducts. And then the second real story is that happens when you sleep. So you have to have enough sleep in order for you to get enough of that in your brain to take away these toxic byproducts. Now, where this, where my brain goes in, in all of this is, uh, it's not so much imagining a future where everybody goes to the doctor and has a hole drilled in their head, but 
But where this might lead, is, as we understand more about the cerebrospinal fluid, do, do we reach a point where there is some other kind of transhuman fix in place to sort of tweak uh, our evolved form for operable performance? Like maybe it ends up being something that's uh, achieved with nanotechnology? Uh, that's true. Yeah. That's a possibility, right? Or is there a way to induce cell shrinkage in your brain yeah. without any adverse side effects um, that would allow an easier path for the fluid. I don't know. These are all really interesting questions, um, but I thought what was most interesting um, in terms of Amanda Fielding is that she's not entirely on board with the trepanation. Like She's definitely interested in pursuing it as a path to understanding consciousness and disease, mm-hmm. but she says uh, in response to the question by Vice, would you be doing the research even if you weren't trepanned? She says, yes, I think so, but I suppose that my personal experience of getting trepanned, which I, of course, would not put total faith in, gave me the feeling that it's worthy of research. So, again, here she is sort of, she's saying, yeah, it's giving me a perspective that I want to pursue, but I'm not sure that it's the way to go. Which I think is helpful. Yeah, yeah. She seems, you know, for a person that that did undergo um, self trepanation, you know, she's she's a she seems to be a very self conscious and very grounded individual. So there you have trepanation, which in a very loose sense is is kind of like loosening the belt on your brain's pants. Yeah, eating a big meal. You've, you've been thinking a lot of thoughts that meal, and then pop. Yeah, a little bit more room, I suppose. A little bit more room to expand. Yeah, yeah that's the idea, at least. Um, it Again, it's it's kind of a gruesome topic, and sort of was hard to look at the footage. If anybody's curious, it's definitely out there. That documentary is on YouTube in little um, smatterings, not in its entirety, but it's very interesting stuff. Cool. Uh, again, do not try this at home, um, as fascinating as the topic is. However, uh, some of you may have under, undergone uh, some sort of uh, neurosurgery in the past and have some sort of uh, insight on today's topic. And if so, we would love to hear from you. Um, you can get in touch with us a number of ways. Of course, the mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There you'll find links to all of our content, our podcast episodes, our blog posts, our videos, links out to our social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and YouTube, where we are Mind Stuff Show. And Julie, uh, how else can they get in touch with us? You can send us an email at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 